I don't live it at a fast pace. I mean, the whole thing of slow is it's about living at the right pace, the right pace for you. My books always follow the same arc. The starting point is existential crisis, right? I suddenly feel I'm not living the way that I should be. That spark for writing slow was finding myself speed reading bedtime stories to my son and Snow White and the Three Dwarves. I love hockey and something about being the oldest, I don't know. It was like I went in the blink of an eye from goal score to granddad. And I just thought, why does it matter what the numbers on my birth certificate say? What should matter is how well I'm playing, how much fun I'm having. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Carl Honore is a true global citizen. He grew up in Canada and studied a degree in history and Italian. He then worked with street children in Brazil, and he now lives in London. Carl is author of the international best-selling book, In Praise of Slow, and he's considered the godfather of the slow movement. That book had a profound influence on my life back then. Carl also wrote Under Pressure, rescuing our children from the culture of hyperparenting, which promotes a more relaxed and more hands-off technique for raising and educating children. His most recent book is Boulder, which is all about aging and how we can do it better and feel better about it. Boulder is also a rallying cry against the last form of discrimination that dare speaks its name, ageism. I first met Carl in London many years ago, and I'm excited to have him on the Performance Intelligence podcast today. We first met with the, or we were introduced by the beautiful Janie Holiday when she had her business Fit for a Princess. I think she was training your wife as a personal trainer. She was, and we also shared a sort of workspace. So she was a couple desks away. So there are all these weird subterranean connections. So, so I was doing a little bit of speaking back then, coming to London a few times a year, and Janie said, you've got to meet this guy. His name's Carl. And he's just written a book a couple of years later, a few decades later. That book has now been sold in 34 languages. I didn't do your proper positioning. So you are a prolific author, four books that I know of. So we've got them here as well. In Praise of Slow, that's the first one, 34 languages. Then after that, you did about parents as well, slow parenting, under pressure. Mm -hmm. Then The Slow Fix and your latest book, Boulder, which talks about aging boldly and, and really challenging the notion of ageist uh, or being ageist. You were a journalist by trade. I don't know where you reside. I know you reside in London. I do. I live in London, have done now many, many years. But where do you reside mentally? You're a global citizen, born in Scotland, then you grew up in Canada, then you went to university in Edmonton. Ed right? Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Back, I came back to Edinburgh for university. You yeah. spent time in uh, Buenos Aires and now you live in London. So let's start on that. I, I want to talk about the books, but what do you like? think, what do you connect with as far as if someone says, where are you from? It's, it's a question that always stumps me a little bit. <laughs> I know that I feel Canadian. Right? I lived my formative years in Canada. Even though I've now lived more years in London than I lived in Canada, I still feel like I'm Canadian. But where are you from is a different kind of question. I feel that that is a movable feast mm. in this globalized world where we flit from place to place physically, but also digitally, right? Virtually, we can be chatting with and having you know work relationships, friendships across the globe. And because of the life I've lived to now, I have such a rich, tangled network of people all over the place that I feel very much at home in many different corners of the planet, right? But 
so where are you from can sh I suppose it feels more like a, a changeable question it changes from week to week this week I almost feel like I'm a little bit from Sydney yeah you must meet people and when you do research for your books that have lived in the same place for 70 years you know you speak how many different languages uh, five five right. so I, I want to tap into that and I'm going to go off script. What created that curiosity for you? So when you were growing up, what was the environment or what was the itch that you had to go deep? Because when you write a book, you don't just do these seven tips on how to age gracefully. Mm -hmm. You go deep. Like you travel the world. You spend three or four years. And in this day and age, you know, we've got influencers with millions of followers on social media and they, they, they look great or have nice teeth and then, hey, buy this product. You go deep. What drives that? Well, I think the key word there is curiosity. It really is. I think ever since I can remember, I always was more interested in maybe questions than answers. I always wanted to know why things were the way they were. And I've never really quite unpacked why, why that was, if it was just something that was always going to be in me genetically. Presumably, it's partly nature, nurture. My parents are both very intelligent. My, my, my father um, you know, was a pathologist, but also started life as a classicist. He won a scholarship to study medicine in Edinburgh from Mauritius. My mom was a sort of superstar scholar of Latin and Greek and teaches French. And so w when I grew up at a dinner table where we talked, mm. you know, this was obviously before the era of smartphones, but we just sat and we, we talked. We talked about food. We talked about language. There'll be some people watching this. We need to explain. You you grew up at a dinner table talking. What What's that? Mm, I know. It seems very, <laughs> very countercultural. Yeah. Very uh, retro, right? Uh, Earlier this week, I was thinking of you in, in getting ready for this interview. And there were people at a table, four people. I was down the South Coast. And I thought, why aren't you at home? Get takeaway. They're all on their bloody mobile phones. You're trying to live this fast existence, skimming across the surface. So you used to talk crazy. Yeah, it, well, I know it does seem peculiar, doesn't it? It seems very out of out of time now. But I think that's that was the the marinade that I grew up in. I suppose was just ideas, language, asking questions, uh, and I, gr I, gr I grew up in really a very quiet, wonderful place to grow up, Edmonton, Alberta, but limited and i just knew that there was much more in the world out there and the way for me to get out and experience it was to ask questions about it and to write about the answers that i came up with so i became a journalist and a foreign correspondent off the back of that your dad is in medicine a pathologist did you want to go down that path or what did you say like you know so archie wants to be a soccer player professional soccer player and he wants to have a farm with greyhounds amazing isn't it that, that curiosity yeah what, what did you want to do i wanted to be a hockey player right because a canadian right canadian. A nat national religion and I think I wanted to be an astronaut as well. I think maybe that comes from the curiosity thing. I wanted to know what was out there and I wanted to be one of the first people to encounter intelligent life. And so those are my two, my two dreams growing up. And in fact, I had a, one of those fork in the road moments when I left high school, I when, went to Edinburgh University, I, I had two options. I was, a, I was an all rounder and I had the option of studying astrophysics or history. And so I set up interviews uh, the first week of university in Edinburgh, my first year, with the director of studies of each of those departments. I went down to the astrophysics guy, and he didn't turn up. I did, just simply didn't turn up to the appointment, and I sat outside his office for an hour and a half, and then I left. The next morning, I had the history guy. He turned up. It was very charming. We had a good chat, and I studied history. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes think in a sliding doors kind of way that if the, the ball had been flipped around the other way that I could have gone down the astrophysics. You're a rocket scientist yeah, yeah, yeah. working in Because I'm a numbers guy. I love numbers, yeah. right? I, love, I always love maths and so on. So I could easily have gone down that road as well. And, and math has become so fascinating now, the overlap with you know, quantum and the overlap with philosophy. And it's not just boring formula anymore. It's 
math is changing the way we we think about how we fit into the world, what it means to be human, and so on. So mm. who knows? Maybe who's saying I can't turn around and five years from now go back and study? Oh, we're going to get into Boulder right, in know? a moment, right? Like we, we want to talk <laughs> that door's about never that closed. expansion. <laughs> not at all, not at all. And in your 50s, you know, we can learn, grow, challenge, do whatever we want. So curiosity, then you went and studied journalism. And how long were you a journalist before you started to write books? Uh, I didn't, actually, I never studied journalism. I studied history and Italian. And then off the back of that, I started working as a freelance journalist. And I did that for 11 years. So I started in the UK covering Europe, then I was in Buenos Aires. I lived in Brazil for a while as well. And then I came back, covered Europe from London, and then made the jump into writing books, which mm. for me, in some ways, doesn't really feel like that much of a jump because my books are so journalistic anyway. Mm. They're conceived and put together with the same spirit. It's very skeptical. I ask lots of questions. I'm not a true believer. I want to see the facts, the data. And I do the due diligence, right? I, it's it's a lot of reportage. And I feel like if I look at that first chapter of my working career where it was a journalist, I was my articles I was writing were kind of like sprints. Now I'm doing the same work, but I'm doing it as a marathon mm. in the form of a book. So his main difference, filing every day as a journalist, 800 to 1,000 words. Some of these babies, you'd have 80,000. So it's, it's, Usually it's, it's like five doing, to 80. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like doing a lot of... A lot of different 1,000 articles coming together. Yeah, 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 in some ways, yeah, yeah. Carl, I can't help but think that your books, they've been written for a post-COVID world. And lockdown taught a lot of us to go slow or taught us to connect with what's important. But that's a manuscript now for how we live a life in a hybrid world. Under pressure, we've all been under pressure. And gosh, how much pressure were we under running businesses, running teams, people running governments, entire organizations, doing that remote in a totally new operating rhythm. And now Boulder, as I approach a significant milestone myself, Carl, yes, I'm about to turn 40 with quite a lot of GST. That book really spoke to me. And I know you've told me this as well in our conversations. So many people around the world have said, Carl, it's like you write books for me. So the process of going deep, the process of the experience you put yourself in for, I think going slow, I think managing pressure, I think aging, it's a manuscript on how we should live our lives in, in a post-COVID world. It's a manuscript on how we should live our lives regardless of what's going on around us because they're key principles that just help us. They're guiding principles that help us have a connected life, a quality life, and a, and a life that's built on meaning and purpose. A lot of people in our space who speak, who coach, who podcast, you know, the, the sort of the, the so-called experts, write a book for brand. You know, I, I want to be a speaker on futurism, I'm talking as mm -hmm. an example. So I'll go out and study what it means to future-proof, and then I'll write a book on it, and then I'll start speaking. My observation and my digging into the research, and from what I know about you, you're not like that. You seem to have an epiphany or a slap and then spend a whole lot of time ruminating, almost pulling every hair out. <laughs> yeah, right? That sounds about right. Sounds yeah. like a lot of fun, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, so if I look at the, the timeline, slow is when you were reading your children bedtime stories and you were skipping the pages. Now, why I know that so well is I was started to do that to Michaela and she pulled me up and I thought, oh no. <laughs> and you were doing- I feel your pain. Yeah. yeah. My, so my son would say, you know, why, you know, my version of Snow White had three dwarves, right? It was that, <laughs> got, to that, got to that stage. Speed reading. So, yeah. let's, so let's go back. Slow, your first book. 34 languages, phenomenal. Sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies. You've just released second or third or updated edition. What happened? What, what, what crystallized to, to get you to write your first book? Well, 
What I've realized now is that my books always follow the same arc. The starting point is some kind of small personal existential crisis, right? I suddenly feel that I'm not living the way that I should be. That's something that I've lost my bearings. I've lost my compass. And really for me, the, that spark for writing slow was finding myself speed reading bedtime stories to my son and, you know, Snow White and the Three Dwarves, you know, what happened to Grumpy? <laughs> and this horrendous scenario where, you know, I knew from the folk memory I had of being read stories that this was should have been the most There's intimate. There's four more dwarfs, there is. Yeah, <laughs> but they weren't in those days. And I just knew that this was wrong, but I couldn't somehow bring myself to do it differently. And then I caught myself speed reading a newspaper article with time-saving tips. And one tip mentioned a book called The One Minute Bedtime Story. So Snow White in 60 seconds. And I caught myself thinking, Hallelujah, right? <laughs> I need that book now, Amazon drone delivery. But then second thought, light bulb over the head, yeah. and I just thought, no, I, I, what's going on here? Am I really in such a hurry I'm prepared to fob off my little boy with a sound bite instead of a story at the end of the day? And I just pulled back from that precipice and thought, what's going on here? What, why am I in such a rush? Why are we all in such a rush? Is there another way of doing things? And that just became... Well, those became the first two or three questions on what turned out to be a very long, long laundry list of questions that led to to writing the book. Well, so. it's still going. Like I'd see on your social posts, you're still you know, prolific at movements all around, slow movements around the world, and you you are known as the godfather of the slow movement. And and now, of course, I don't have to write a new book every time a movement, <laughs> a micro small movement comes out. I can just put out a little post about it. But it is, I mean, it's thrilling to see where it's gone because I, I definitely, when I wrote that book at the time, I had never written a book before. Mm. I had no, very little experience of publishing. And in fact, you know, I had a another sort of sliding doors <laughs> gestation with that book, which is that I thought I'd love to write a book. I um, got in touch with uh, my wife's agent and he gave me three agents to get in touch with to pitch the idea to. I pitched to all three of them and they all turned me down. And they said, there's no market for a book about slowing down. So we're um, talking timeline early 2000s. This would be 2002. Yeah. And I just thought, well, maybe they, you know, they know better than I do. Maybe I'm going off on one here, right? And so I was pretty much ready to hang it up. And then I was found myself at a, the proverbial dinner party telling the story. And someone said to me who worked in publishing, you should try this agent called Patrick. Rang him the next day. He said, let's meet. We sat for two hours in his club in Soho. He said, we can totally sell this. And within, I'd say, two weeks, it was up and running. So it was, it was, I was so close to not writing that book. I, I, I never yeah. knew that. I love that. Because <laughs> I, I just thought you must have had this epiphany, got an agent, global bestseller. How close were you to throwing it away? I was so close. In fact, I, I, I really had pretty much given up on it. And my, it was funny because my parents were very keen. I remember they were staying with us. They were staying. Had, had you written the book? Had you? No, no, not at all. No, I'd written a series of articles for the Canadian paper that I was the uh, the Europe correspondent for at the time. And the articles had made a big splash and got a lot of people talking and there were ripples going around the media about it. And I thought, I want to dig deeper into this subject and I feel that I would like to write a book. So that's why I started thinking, about how do I write a book? But I ran into this brick wall pretty early on with these three agents, very different types, right across the spectrum in London publishing, no, all no, saying, no. no, there's just, this is a dead end. Don't waste your time on this. And I, I, my parents were, in fact, I think even more, they said, well, don't worry, you know, we we think maybe you should write it and we'll if you need some you know a little bit of financial help with an, if you don't get in advance we'll maybe be able to help you out and stuff 
And I thought, well, I don't want to be, you know, <laughs> I've, you know, I've been away, living away from home for more than 10 years. I don't want to be leaning on my parents for hey, a loan and what, stuff. What are you doing? I'm writing a book that mom and dad are yeah, exactly. sponsoring me. So I thought, I don't think I can do that. And then as it happens, probably about three days later, I found myself at that, that dinner party and the person beside me, you know, and it just, I mean, I sometimes think, wow, wow, it could, what could have happened? Or, I mean, who knows? It might've seen the light of day through a different route or someone else could have written the similar, who knows, but it just could so easily not have happened. And yet that was the book that totally changed my life completely. I mean, that's the before and after moment. Mm. How long did it take to write? I, I've, that book, like all my books take, usually start to finish about 20 months, 20, 21 months. And that includes all the traveling because I travel, I don't you know, do long distance interviews. I mean, sometimes you have to, but I prefer to be on the ground. I like to be in the room, on site, in the trenches. I want all my senses engaged with what the person's saying to me. I want to see what's going on around them when they tell their story. I want to feel the heat in the room. So I, it, there's a lot of travel involved, mm -hmm. but at the same time I'm writing and making notes, but yeah, so it's a, I don't know, a lot of people will bang out books in you know, six weeks or less. Uh, I, it's just not the way I approach it. I'm more thorough. And well, you, you, the bouncing ball, going back to a kid, coming from a, you know, a multi-diverse linguistic family, curious, always wanting to know why, you're not going to bang out a book in six weeks and get some editor to ghostwrite and you know put the seven tips here. Yeah. You, you couldn't. No, that. no, I just, I couldn't actually. And I've been asked to do things like that. You know, why don't you just capitalize on this, side of your public profile will knock something out in a month or two. And and I just, I don't know, a cold shiver goes down my spine because it just doesn't feel, it just doesn't sit well with me, that kind of mm -hmm. writing. I, I really, Teflon. for me, yeah, it just feels like scratching the surface or ticking boxes. And I'm not really interested in doing that. I, wa I want, I mean, I've now got four books. I think of the first three books as my slow trilogy. And now the new book, Boulder, is kind of the beginning of something new. And I think, I was just thinking the other day, actually, that if I got, and heaven forbid, <laughs> I'm not calling this down on my head, but if I got knocked down by a bus, I'd think, well, you know, I've written four books that I'm proud of those books. You know, mm. people are reading those books years from now. They're reading them all over the place. And, you know, I've, you know, I've had a pretty good innings. I, I expect to write more. I don't know what the next book will be. I usually have four or five years between publishing books, uh, so I have no idea. I'll I'm give you a tip. Waiting for the next existential crisis so, to hit me, right? And we're going to talk about the existential crisis for Boulder, but something's going to happen to you in about three or four years, and you're going to go, oh, fuck, oh, that's it. And then yeah. you'll travel and, and dig. But before we get to that, slow had a profound impact on me. I don't think I've told you this because I was running a fast life. You know, I was living in Sydney. I was in London a couple of times every year. I was working with the Australian cricket team, trying to start a speaking business, trying to write a book, trying to have a relationship. And I just read it and went, slow down. You, know, <laughs> you, you don't have to do everything at a million miles an hour. So question on that, you live life at a pretty fast pace. So how does the slow guy keep going at a fast pace? Well, I don't live it at a fast pace. I mean, the whole thing of slow is it's about living at the right pace, the right pace for you. So what might seem fast to you might feel slow to me and what seems sort of just about right to me might seem really slow to you. And so what slow boils down to is about whether you're able to move through each moment, you know, fully present, engaged, enjoying, recharging yourself in between. And I actually never feel rushed anymore. That's something that's completely changed for me. I have a very clear before and after. Before I wrote and did the whole slow first book, I was just a card-carrying roadrunner every 
moment of my day was a race against the clock. I was always looking at the watch. What can I do with these next two minutes? I never feel like that anymore. I get lots done. Mm. I live what I think is a, an interesting and stimulating and, and worthwhile life, but I honestly don't feel rushed anymore. To me, it doesn't feel fast. So there may be moments where I may have to move fast physically or perhaps even you know kick my brain into high gear to bang something out really quickly on paper. But because the rest of the time I do, I'm able to move at a pace that is in harmony with my own body and mind mm. and so on, I, I have enough in the tank to do those faster moments that are imposed on me by circumstance, get through them and then I like slow that. back down again. It's, I, it's about a cadence. Because I, I think, first of all, I thought slow was a real negative word. You know, it's, yeah. it's altius, deltius, fortius, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Higher, faster, stronger. And then what's the Latin word for slow? It doesn't fit into the mottos, does it? No, 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 it's it's a dirty word in our culture. None of the great philosophers wrote about going slow. But it's not about being lazy. No. So what what I really drew a a parallel in sport, we talk about recovery. The world's best athletes recover better, recover harder than the other athletes. And they often spend more time, more money, more investment in recovery. And and I see a lot about that with you, how you talk about your travel. So you flew to Sydney, but you stopped in the UAE and you go and visit a whole lot of temples. So you you, you smell the flowers along the way. Exactly. And in this trip, I, I could have flown in a day later into Sydney, but I make sure I build in an extra day where I just, you know, reconnect with people or just wander around, let my mind drift, uh, explore, go to look at some art that I haven't seen before, uh, think about what I'm doing work-wise. I I don't ever do that thing of, you know, cramming so that I'm just Mm -hmm. racing and hopping from one thing. It just, I just don't do that anymore. I used to do it all the time. And of course, the delicious irony (laughs) and paradox is that by slowing down to the right pace for you, ultimately you get more done, right? You get things done better, you make fewer mistakes, and maybe most important of all, you enjoy things 5,000 times more because you're there, right? You're not trying to rush to the next thing or juggling four things at the same time. You're doing the one thing now that this moment demands, giving it all your time and attention, you're squeezing every last drop of joy out of it, and then you're moving on to the next thing, right? Did Which, you foresee what was going to happen with technology when you wrote that? So Cal Newport, I don't know if you, mm-hmm. you know yes, of I've Cal. Read, yeah, did, yeah, yeah. But his book, Digital Minimalism, he talks about mobile phones have moved from a technology device to a constant companion. And it's so true. You see people going to Bondi Beach, and they're taking photos of Bondi Beach, or they go to London, and they're taking a photo of the Thames. Be at the mm. Thames, be at the beach, you know, be yeah. present. Did you foresee that happening with technology? I Well, uh, certainly when I f- wrote the first book, In Praise of Slow, that was starting to happen. So social media was beginning. People were, it was a time of the crackberry, right? People were constantly looking at their phones in restaurants. There was less on the phone to be distracted by, right? There were, there were, we didn't they have all these amazing apps dumb, and things. They, but yeah. they were still, people, people were still, so it was pretty clear where we were going. I, I, I'm not sure if I could have guessed exactly that we would reach a stage now where, for instance, you know, 20% of people interrupt the act of making love to interact with their phone somehow, right? You just think- Is that the 20%? Yeah, one in five of us now break off having sex to answer the phone or look at a tweet, right? Or really upload something to Instagram. You think, well, how does, how does that have, even work? Have right? you ever done that? I personally haven't, and thankfully no one's done it to me either, <laughs> more importantly, right? But people do it and you think, you know, if that's, you're not really doing the sex right if you're 
reaching yeah. for your phone to see what's happening on Facebook at the same time. Wow. Something has gone seriously well, maybe awry. Maybe they're looking at tips on the internet. Maybe they're... Yeah, oh, in the self-improvement era. Yes, right, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some tubes, you know, different channels well, for that. Yeah. I, I did come across something recently. I mean, that's the wrong words to use in this context, but... Um, that there's a some kind of app you can get which measures your sexual performance, right? So a, a guys can sort of hook it up and switch it on and measure how many thrusts and their thrust stre- <laughs> their thrust strength and this kind of thing. And you think <laughs> if we've got to a stage where we're you know dissecting our sexual performance to that level, I think data has got way out of hand. <laughs> this <laughs> wasn't in our briefing notes, and I'm loving it. Like, I didn't think I'd be talking to the godfather of slow about thrust performance. <laughs> there are a lot of more questions I'd like to ask about thrust performance, but let, let's leave that those for another, for another day. Another podcast, yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the epiphany to write the book uh, changed your life. You started traveling, started speaking. What happened before Under Pressure? The whole slow thing just exploded and I was in the middle of all that. And I just found myself, I mean, I was, a, I was already a parent, obviously, but my, my children were then a little older. And my existential crisis that got under pressure going was when I found myself just falling into that, what are we calling it nowadays? The, the hyper-parenting trap or that kind of parenting as a competitive sport. My and kids are so advanced. You yeah, know, that, right, that conversation yeah, yeah. dinner party. So clever. Right? <laughs> Sarah <laughs> is amazing on the violin. Yeah. You should see yeah. her. <laughs> Great eight. And th- yeah. So I, I, even though here I was, you know, the, 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 by now the, the global voice of slow traveling around the world telling everyone and how wonderful it is to be patient and let things unfold and unfurl at their own pace, I found myself trying to accelerate my son's artistic development. So I was at a school parent teacher evening and in the art department and the um, art teacher said uh, your son is you know he's so creative we've got one of his drawings up on the wall here and it's a model for all the pupils and inside you know my inner tiger dad is thinking yes bring it on <laughs> tell me more and then she dropped what i think of as a g-bomb she said mr honore your son is a gifted young artist right and there is that six letter word gifted right which i think for a lot of parents nowadays is mm. you know it's like um red rag to a bull or it's the the holy grail you know it's like the gold star that tells us that not only are we doing a really good job as a parents, but maybe we're doing just a better job than everybody else in the room, My right? My child is more gifted than your child. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, where's the Mensa application form? And I just, I don't know, I kind of lost it in that moment. And I went home and I started looking for an art tutor <laughs> for my son, so you who had, was seven years old at the time. You right? had visions of walking into the major galleries and- Oh yeah, I, I, the, new, the new next Rembrandt was sleeping in the room next door, I was convinced. And I found a tutor and I said to my son, I've got this art critic, you know, art, prof who's going to teach you how to draw better bring your a game to you know year two art come on draw better yeah exactly draw faster draw better and my son just looked at me like i was from outer space and said i don't want a tutor i just want to draw and and then he asked me the question that really was the coup de grace he said why do grown-ups always have to take over everything and it was oh yeah it was like a solar plexus shot moment and i just thought it was like an out-of-body experience i saw myself in sharp relief from the side and i just thought whoa this is just ugly it's unedifying it's wrong and he's right you know i'm trying to take over his artistic development for the wrong reasons right for my own reasons because i i'm fantasizing about him being the next picasso right so i thought i need to you know, dig into why and then think about my own parenting. I love your authenticity because you're you're traveling the world as the slow guru and then you have a moment where you're trying to speed up falling short of my own preaching (laughs) but rather than burying it you you, you pull the thread i want to ask more more questions about under pressure but what does your son do now he is in third year university studying chemistry does he still draw 
He does actually. Yeah, he never did the art stuff, but he's still a very good drawer. He he drew a uh, card, a kind of Christmas card at Christmas, and I thought he's got a, he's got a so pretty good hand. So rather than you know, being a Rembrandt, drawing for him is a way of maybe disconnecting, or it's a, a hobby or a passion. Yeah, which is actually what everything ought to start and maybe carry on being for people, right? Certainly something as intimate and small and personal as transcendent as drawing and art. To have someone coming in and try to hijack that and turn it into a career path or something that's going to pop out of a resume or a CV just seems so wrong. <laughs> now looking back, I feel ashamed. Um, and in fact, even with both of those books, certainly with the bedtime story thing with In Praise of Slow, I remember thinking when I was writing, I, I don't think I can tell that story. It's too, I'm too embarrassed. It's too shameful. Mm. I'm too ashamed. And then I thought, no, I've just got to be straight with people. Well, people I've connect. Gotta, and people connected instantly with that. And and I did actually think as towards the end, as the book was being finished and I was looking back and you start to think, well, how's this book going to land? I thought, well, you know, that's a story that's going to make sense to a very narrow strip of the demographic rainbow, right? It's going to be people who are reading bedtime stories to their children. But no, it isn't because we've all got that memory. Yeah. We were all read to as children. And many of us, even if we don't have small children now, we're reading to our nephews and nieces yeah. or our grandchildren or we just, it's such a basic human experience is being read to. But I reckon it's so many people stories. listening or watching this podcast have done Snow White and the Three Dwarfs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was the thing I find. It, as soon as that book came out, people were writing to me, and they're still writing to me all the time, and they say, oh, I do that, you know, and or they come up after, after a talk and say, you know, they've often got tears in their eyes and say, I'm doing that too, right? I'm speed reading the Brothers Grimm, you know? <laughs> My version of Snow White has two dwarves only, right? You know? So, yeah, it's it's such a... It, I realized after the fact that it was a, a universal story, but I hadn't quite, it was just a, it was the truth, right? It was my truth at the time. And it was one that I wasn't 100% sure about sharing because I'm actually quite a private person. That's the other thing that's weird about where I've ended up. As a journalist, I never really wanted to do like columns and opinion and all that kind of, I just wanted to tell the story. Have my name out there is fine, everything my picture. But then suddenly as an author, especially as the spokesperson or the voice of a, cultural tectonic shift you kind of get thrust into the limelight so i had to to step up and do that and, and i do i do enjoy it i love public speaking and so on but i'm still ama amazingly private there's really only a few on little stories media. i shell but i don't i share but i don't i don't if you look at my social media you won't see any pictures of my kids oh, I know, yeah. or anything so from my you're private protective life. of your family very on social. very yeah i don't uh, you know i i've chosen a few personal stories that i tell tell them over and over and you know, I'll tell little things like I told, told you about my son studying chemistry and so on, but you won't find anything on my social media about, about mm. them, none of them, which is my choice. I mean, I know other people go other directions. I, I feel it's right for me to just keep. There's a theme with you. It's about cadence and comfort and comfort in being comfortable with what's right for you, comfortable at the pace you work, comfortable with how much you share. So you've obviously got a really good self-awareness. Do you, do you, spend a lot of time thinking, reflecting, time alone? I do, you know, I do. And I think I realize that I always have. It's it's funny, I, I've, throughout my career, I've been a lone gunman, right, as a foreign correspondent, journalist outside the office. So I've always worked alone. Uh, I'm very gregarious. I have lots of friends. I, I You're not love being around people. Not at all. No, I'm very convivial. I love a good party. I'm the last person on the dance floor, right? I like to talk to people. I love to ask questions and be in conversations. But I also have always loved solitude. 
I've always been mm. very at ease in my own company. And I think I've become even more that way as I've got older. And that's one of the things, that's one of the benefits that comes with aging is that we feel more comfortable in our own skin, more at ease with ourselves and our place in the world. And I've always had some of that, but I think I've got more of it as I moved out of my 30s into my 40s. And mm. I, I really don't care now. Solitude is very think? different to loneliness because we have an epidemic Utterly. where we've got thousands of friends on Facebook and Instagram and no one to go out to dinner with on a Saturday night. Yeah. And you look at loneliness rates in Australia and the UK, they have a minister for yeah. happiness yeah, in, in, yeah. In, in, in the oh, UK. Loneliness someone is, now looking at happiness and, and, and the, the antidote to loneliness. They have a, what do they call, they call it? The loneliness czar who's in charge of dealing with the loneliness epidemic in the UK. And what's, what's interesting about loneliness, of course, is that one of the tropes, one of the cliches and stories we tell ourselves about loneliness is that it's uh, an older person thing, right? The lonely old person, right? But actually, if you look at, you drill down into the numbers, lonely loneliness is, at, you know, is right across every single generation. And in fact, it's pretty, pretty rife in that, what are we calling them now? Gen Z, millennial, you know, that kind of, who are no, more connected, as you were saying before, electronically than ever before but don't have anyone they can go and walk around the park mm. and talk to when their mother dies. Right? I can feel yeah. another book coming. Yeah, <laughs> and the, that, that little itch of an existential <laughs> crisis going, but I'm not lonely myself, so maybe, maybe I just have to. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, I think solitude is the thing to be, um, to be celebrated, right? In, mm. in the right dosage, like everything, mm. right? You don't want too much solitude. Mm. So I've, I, 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 and I said this to you last week, I have enforced solitude when I write. So I've literally got back this morning from my writing block in Jeroa, writing my next book. And, and, and are you I, totally alone in the house when you're there? Or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, um, Tony, my partner, came down on the weekend with mm -hmm. a dog and sometimes the kids come up. On the whole, I'm there by myself. Yeah. And I, I, I have a whole routine. And in fact, I flip it. I have a different routine there. I, I, when I am in Sydney or traveling anywhere, I always exercise first thing. When I'm in Jeroa, I wake up and I write because I find I'm good first thing of the morning. Oh, then I have a little yeah. brain break. And then I'll yeah. write again and I'll exercise of an afternoon in my energy oh, dip. Right. But I find forced boredom and mm -hmm. solitude is great for thought. And, and, and yeah. I think it's, it's something a a lot of people miss. I, I coach a lot of my executives now to build in solitude. And they first look at me, Carl, and they go, mm, what am yeah. I paying you to tell me to have time by myself? Well, yeah. I'm paying you because you're always connected. You never think, you never self-reflect. Yeah. But yeah, it just seems that you have that built in. Do you have rituals around that? Stuff in your diary to, to no, make I, yourself? No, but I think now it's so natural to me that just to seek moments. I just find the moments, whether I'm sitting on the bus in London, or I mean, I cycle a lot. Um, I, no, I don't, I don't actually have, I, I probably did maybe 15, 20 years ago when I was starting to think about the importance of carving out more solitude, but I think I've probably always been attuned to the need for it. So I, it's just sort of, I can think, okay, I need some solitude now and I'll, I know that when I was finishing Boulder, without even having to say anything to anyone, I just began taking very long walks in the evening which is something I hadn't done ever in my life, really. I mean, I'm, I'm done, I do a lot of sports and stuff, so it's not like I don't need the steps. I, like, not like I need the steps. But I would go out and I would walk for an hour every night in the last four or five months of the writing of Boulder. To, to just, just reflect? Partly to reflect straight on, sometimes just to try and empty my head. And then, you know, that kind of thinking you do when you're late in a book, you've got the mm. whole book in your cerebral cortex. Yeah. You want to back away from it, look at something else, come back and things untangle. And, and just to, it was, but again, it wasn't anything. I didn't have it in my diary. It wasn't there. I have to go at this time, but I would just say, you know what? 
say to my family, I'm, I'm actually going to go for a walk. And they started to, I think my wife thought I was having an affair or something. I was gone for so every evening. I'm just- I'm off to Bettison Park again. Right, again? Exactly right. Cruising in Bettison Park. Is that new show? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah my, my, I remember my daughter was saying, why are you going for these really long walks? In a slightly weird, uh, worried, worried tone. But no, it was all good. And I haven't, I went for another one recently, but again, it's, you're, you're it's cadence. You, I needed it at that time. You didn't have a trench jacket and you were wearing stuff yeah, under yeah, it. I, I came weird. home fully clothed, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I've yeah. got a question, and this is a personal one, about writing books. What's your process? So you get an itch, mm. uh, have an epiphany, and then it sounds like there's a real frustration, a real tension. Yeah. What happens from there? Well, I definitely sit with it for a long time. I, I need the question. I need it to be a core question. And then that has to just, I have to just marinate in that for quite a while. And I need to feel that the question won't let me go. So I'll go off and do other things. I'll be doing other work. And if that question keeps scratching away at the back of my mind and it's still there, you know, a couple of months later, then I start to think, you know, I, I need to, there's some existential housework that mm -hmm. needs to be done here. <laughs> and so then I start digging in. And, and by digging in, I mean, I start researching. I do just in terms of process, I do I do the research, some research. I kind of work out whether I think there's enough to do a book. Then there's the, I write the proposal, which my agent will then you know help me polish. Then we go out and find the publishers. And once I know I've got publishers who want it, uh, right. then I go and do the deep research. So you get the deal before you do yeah. the work. Oh yeah, I never do the work before so you the do, deal. You got to do a bit of work to get the deal. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of the, it's funny. I mean, it's the the the, the journey from the proposal to the final product is just astonishing. I mean, it's light years away because you, you're guessing at what you're going to come up with. Uh, you're filling in blanks. You're, I mean, it's so, so different from writing a book, especially when you dig deep on a topic. It's a lot of bloody work. I think a lot of people oh, have yeah. no idea. Yeah. It's, we're not talking hundreds. We're talking thousands and thousands of hours. Oh, yeah. I mean, to, to write a real book, I mean, a solid book is it's just an epic task you know mm. it's just huge and but wonderful and but also i mean i don't i was going to say exhausting but no it's just so absorbing right i mean it just i feel i don't know if you feel the same that once i'm committed once i've signed up for a book i feel like i'm carrying it around in my head mm. constantly and you switch off and move mm -hmm. away but you're i'll be walking down the street or rollerblading or something or playing hockey and, and i'll suddenly think you know what, I need to move that paragraph from chapter three to the end, of, you know, and it's yeah. all there. It's like yeah. this weird, well, what's that Tom Cruise film? The, um, the one where he's got he's got all that- A Minority uh, Report? Yeah, where he sees all the things in this, and I feel like it's that, I've got it all there in front of me. I find moving helps, not just sitting down. Oh, it's, um, moving is Remember so the piano player on Sesame Street? I'll never get it. Yeah. <laughs> and he <laughs> smashes his head. I find disconnecting, so, yeah. you know, Cal Newport talks about the deep work, but I find getting out of the deep work and just reflecting subconscious, a lot mm -hmm. of that stuff bubbles away. But back to your process, I'm fascinated. Well, no, but just, I will, but that idea of that gear shifting, for me, it's about shifting gears. So there'll be times when switch on deep and then other times go away, cook, go cooking, you know, go cook something or go for a run or go play some sports. And then, and I know that my brain, I just trust now that my brain is working in a different kind of mode mm. when I'm not sitting in front of my laptop, right? So the process is. Uh, well, some some people might say though, if they don't understand their rhythm or their cadence, mm -hmm. no, no, just sit until you've got the words. Yeah. Never yeah. do that. Yeah, that's that was something that I learned early on is that 
And again, it's that delicious paradox of slow that if you think that by sitting at your desk and powering through, right, putting in an extra hour, another hour, you're gonna get to the finish line. You may reach that finish line, but you're gonna be limping and it's not gonna be, an, it's not gonna be a pretty sight when you get there. Mm. You'd be so much more efficient if you stop when you can feel your body and your mind and even maybe your soul crying out for a break. Have that break, reset, you're, like you're rebooting everything and then come back and you'll get to the finish line probably faster and in much better shape. And I, so I find now if I'm, my, my writing process is very, it's very regimented. So once I, I'm, I, I'm in the, the research phase, that's kind of all over the place. So I'll be traveling. It's a big and, messy, yeah, so fluid. I'll, I'll be doing some interviews and I'll transcribe and then I'll do some reading. And so that's all over the place, right? Where it gets very regimented for me is when I start writing because I don't write a single word of the book until I've done 95% of my research. Which, really? is, which is different for most people. Oh, I, wow. So I you don't even start drafting nothing, chapters? Nothing, nothing at all. I, I have in my head a vague architecture of what the book will be thematically. So I think there's gonna be a chapter on, I don't know, sex. There'll be a chapter on the workplace. Just that's more so that I can arrange my thoughts and material, but it often doesn't end up that way in the final and book. And you don't write because you don't wanna have a bias on your information before you do the whole research? No, I don't think it is that. I don't write because I just don't think I have anything to say yet. I need to I need to have done the research first, and then I think, okay, I know what the argument well, is. That's a journalist I mean, curiosity yeah. coming, isn't it? Yeah. I, I need to I need I need to know that I've got something to say. I just don't want to sit down and write. It just feels like it's going to be half baked to me. I mean, how can I, or how can one, make a cogent, compelling argument if you haven't marshaled all of the, the facts and the data and the arguments? I just mm. I, I don't know. I just for me, it just doesn't work. So I literally will get almost to the end of the. There'll be some holes I need to fill later on with, but basically I've done all the research, got this massive mountain of material, and out of that mountain I start hewing, I start writing. And that's when the, and that's the work writing begins. Yeah, so then I, I go, and I have a very set routine there. I have a, an office where I write, I, I get up in the morning, I cycle in, I arrive at you know about nine o'clock, I work till six, and then I go home. I don't do any writing in the evening. I don't do anything outside. I don't do anything on weekends. I just write a normal office day. So you, you you literally go from your place, you cycle. So there's some movement again. There's exactly. A theme there. It's a 45 minute cycle ride. So it's a pretty good, you know. And I'm thinking all the time as I'm going. Try, I'm also trying not to get run over in London traffic. Yeah, but, London traffic's uh, yeah, strong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm at the same time, I can feel part of my brain you know, digesting and so mulching. Nine, nine to six, and do you, do you write in blocks? Like write for a few hours, have a break, write again, have a break? Yeah, I do, what I don't do is sit there all that time. So I get up, um, I'll get up and walk around the block. Uh, I'll do a burst of writing. It's, for me, it's in bursts and mm. spurts. I, I'll sit there for maybe for an hour. If, if, it's, if I ever feel stuck, really stuck, I, I get up and I'll either do a bit of um, meditation or more often than not, I'll go for a walk. Um, this is like therapy for me. I, I thought I was a little bit crazy in my oh, writing is process. Oh, like yours? It's is so like, similar. Yeah, yeah. Um, the itch, I, I research and write at the same time. So it's a, it's a, the delineation between yours is there's the itch, the existential yeah. crisis. Reflect on it, put together a proposal to the publisher. So the, phase one is the yeah. slap, the jolt. Phase two is the publishing deal, put it together. Phase three for you is the research. Phase four is then the writing. Yeah. But you've you mix together phase three and four. Yeah. But do you not find that you're you start writing, I don't know, a couple of pages in a chapter and then you do a bit more research or you come across a new study or you meet an interesting and unusual new character you've interviewed and think, oh, actually what I wrote 
a week ago doesn't actually now stand and you've got to go back and unpick it. I'm laughing because my editor, I'm going to show this. Uh, hello, Julian. And then he's going to go, <laughs> there's our new approach. <laughs> I'm on Team Julian then. Am I oh, without even yeah. knowing it right yet? Julian is going to love you. Yeah, oh, I chop and change. Yeah. Yeah, a lot. But well, I mean, if that works for you, I mean, I, everybody's going to be different. Oh, it I, makes it pretty punishing, I think, for people I'm working with. So, right. Yeah. So big learning for me. Well, that's the other thing. I don't, I'm very, I'm a very solitary writer. I don't show anything to my editor until the book is done. Pretty really? much. Yeah. I know a lot of writers will send a chapter and stuff. I pretty much hold it all back till it's pretty yeah. much done. See, I like the iterative process. Well, I like it, but I like it at the end. Yeah. I want to get it all out. I, I don't like, I think what I find really unnerving is sending something out into the world that's a rough copy. Are you a perfectionist? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Not borderline. You are. A I think. Oh, I'm a card-carrying perfectionist. Definitely. Yeah. 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 But it's you know I'm able now. I I channel it. I, I like to think I channel it. Right. Yeah. So it, it works. It, it's so far it's worked. You know, it, I, perfectionism can really lead to procrastination because it's never good enough. You know, yeah. it's good or bad, right or wrong. But you've obviously learned to channel that. Exactly. And I don't ever. I'm very punctual. I never miss a deadline. I mean, that's my editors. I think love that I always still deliver my book on time. So you have a timeline. So when you. When you go and you do the deal. Yeah, the deal's done. You're supposed to deliver by a certain date. I always hit that date. So you work backwards from that date. Yeah, well, I have it in my mind. So I know, I, I make sure that in the contract, I'm going to get my 20, 21 months and I know I can deliver it in that time. And I always do. So the perfectionism doesn't trip me up in the sense that I'm two months after deadline saying, no, I can't show it to you yet because this isn't quite, no, I don't ever have those emails or those conversations, mm -hmm. thankfully, touch wood, right? Maybe on my next book. But up until now, I've always handed it in on time. And then, then the collaborative process starts because then the editors sit around, they go through it and they say, okay, we think you might want to think about this, that, and then it's the batting back and forth. And I love that process yeah, yeah. because you'll know if yourself, you, then you know every day you go into the office once you've got your feedback from the editors, the book is gonna be better by the end of that day, Yeah. right? You spent however many hours you spend there, they've given a thing, yeah, you make a little change here, you know the book is just tightening. That's a real, you know, that's and a real I love structured that process, process as well, yeah. yeah. Yo, it's for me, it's a very, I know exactly how my books are done. Did you do that by default on your first book or did you actually think he's the way that's gonna work best That's for how me? I fell into doing it, I yeah. think. I mean, it, in a way it's quite journalistic because I hadn't really thought of this before, but if that's how you write an article for a newspaper, you don't, do half the research, write the piece, go do some more interviews and finish the piece. Yeah, you know, yeah. you get all the stuff together, you write the piece, then you send it to the editor. The editor makes some suggestions or changes, then it goes in. You don't, nor do you write the half the piece and send it to the editor and say, what do you think? And he writes back and no, you get the piece as good as it can be, ideally publishable, send it to the editor, hope for minimum tweaks done. I'm so, so in glad. In some ways, it's very like, I, now I think about it, it's You're very journalist. like journalism, actually. Yeah, I'm so the, glad I asked that question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so back to the first process with the epiphany, Boulder. Yeah. Well, I was playing in a ball hockey tournament in the north of England. Ball hockey is like ice hockey, same sport, except no ice, playing on gym floor with a ball instead of a puck. Otherwise, it's the same sport. Still hit hard? You still get you still get hit pretty hard. In fact, I got a bad hit from last week's session here on my elbow. And so we're, we're I'm playing with my team. Uh, we're stuck in the quarterfinals. We're locked in a zero-zero draw with a team we annihilated the year before. Can't break through. And then out of nowhere, I score, you know, just a highlight reel goal, the kind of goal I'll be looking back on for my deathbed, you know, 30 years from now. And propel my team into the semifinals. Well, I'm gonna challenge 30 years, but keep going. Oh right, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
And so, you know, I'm floating on air. I'm I'm like Wayne Gretzky, right? The Canadian. <laughs> the kid, icon, yeah, yeah. yeah. And until I walk into the dressing room where one of the um, organizers is flicking through player profiles, looking at people's details. And someone says, who's the youngest player here? And it turns out it's Jimmy, some 16-year-old kid who's, you know, signed up the year, you know, week before. And then someone else says, who's the oldest? And he looks through and he points at me and says, Carl, mate, you're the oldest player here. And it was, I don't know, it was such a weird moment. It was, it was like, it was like getting hit by a ton of bricks. I mean, I, I knew I was one of the oldest, right? I'm not deluded or blind. I, you know, I got gray hair. I'm, I was, I was 48 at the time. You've got hair. Yeah, I I suppose. Yeah. But it was, it's, I've not as much as I did. Right. And, um, I thought, you know, so I knew I was, but somehow being the oldest, it just, it rocked me to the core and all these horrific questions piled in. I was thinking, well, do I look out of place here? People laughing at me behind my back. Should I take up a more age-appropriate pastime like bingo? Not, you know, I like bingo as much as the next person, but I don't love it. I love hockey. And and yet something about being the oldest, I don't know. It was like I went in the blink of an eye from goal scorer to granddad. And I just thought, why? Why does it matter? You know, I'm playing well. I'm, I'm the captain of a team that we're the number one team in the country. Why should I be questioning? Why does it matter what the numbers on my birth certificate say? What should matter is how well I'm playing, how mm. much fun I'm having, how much I'm contributing to my team. So and yet wh- it didn't. Why, why did it matter so much? Well, that was the question. That was the existential crisis. I thought, well, why? Why should I feel this way about the th- a sport I've loved since I can remember? And so I came home and I thought, and I sat with that the topic and the question for a long time and thought I need to, and then started. Did, did you actually go, oh no, here we go. I, I, <laughs> on the train <laughs> home, <laughs> I did think, wow, this might be the next book. Actually, yeah? I did actually think that. that on that day. On that day, because we we lost. We lost the next, we lost the semifinals. And I, I think I say in some of the book that I, I didn't play very well in the semifinals. And I, I think I fell into that. I mean, this is one of the things I look at in the book is that if, we, if you have a toxic downbeat view of aging, then you're more likely to age less well, right? Mm. Uh, and I think suddenly I started playing like a granddad. I mean, it was just weird. I just didn't play. I just, something about, and I remember very clearly, we, we rode down my team on the bus and I was sitting there thinking, you know, I think there's something here. And I did say to one of my teammates, I said, I talked to him and, and, and sure enough, it ended up being the book. And, and literally last week, I played again with this teammate who had been injured for a while and hadn't seen him. And he had just read the book. It was so funny. He said, I remember that conversation we had on the train. Yeah. And so, yeah, these things all sort of stitched together in the long run. But I guess the question, the, the real question was, why should we feel so hemmed in by our chronological age. And the argument of the book is that we're moving into a, a golden age of aging, right? This is, it's never been a better time to grow older in human history. And that chronological age is losing its power to define and limit us. Right? Well, some companies, right, are not now categorizing us by how old you are, it's by interest. I think Netflix- Netflix and Amazon, exactly, yeah. two good examples. It, it doesn't matter to Netflix whether you're 32, 42, or 52. What matters is, do you watch Breaking Bad? Or did you give up on the crown halfway through, right? That's mm. what matters. And that's what's gonna define us more and more nowadays, I think, is not so much how old we are on paper, but the choices we make. So I've got Peter Pan syndrome. And my mm. friends say this as well. Yeah. So I, I still think I'm in my 30s. That could be called delusion. So I love the notion of aging. I, I love reading your book. But it's interesting that you weren't feeling that, that you know, you're, you're, you're out there teaching, you're living, you're engaging, you're going at your cadence, but you still felt old, so. Well, I felt old in the sense, it was, that was what was so strange. I hadn't been feeling old. I hadn't really been thinking about my age. Mm. I'd just been pushing it away because the whole culture is telling you that once you get to a certain age, it's all downhill, right? That 
it's all over, you're a granddad, you're past it. Look at, think of all the, it's woven into our vernacular. Look at the phrases we Slow use. Slow down, you're too old for Wrong that. side of 30, over the hill, yeah. feeling my age, showing my age. Everything is so poisonous, so yeah. toxic. So it's like a chamber of horrors view of growing older. And rather than confront that, I was just doing the head in the sand thing and thinking, okay, I'm playing hockey, I'm playing at a high level, I'm enjoying things, I'm just gonna, and then just suddenly being confronted in black and white as being the oldest player of, I don't know, there were 250 odd players there. I don't know, it just rocked me, it just mm. shook me to the core. And it got me thinking, I, looking back now, thankfully it got me thinking about age, right? In a way that I hadn't. Mm. And, and it made me realize that what we need now and what we are actually, I think, starting to forge is a much is a new narrative around aging for the 21st century. You know, redefine what it means to grow older, uh, to to come up with a new story or about typical aging. Carl Honoré style. You didn't just go and do a Google search. You spent yeah. a couple of years traveling. There the was world. some Google searching, but I did a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a lot of travel. Yeah. So, what were some of the highlights? Twofold. What were some of the highlights, and what were some of the things that surprised you? Mm. Well. Gosh, there were so many highlights. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I, I, I had one of my lowlights actually was I try, I try, and I write about this in the book. I tried on an aging suit, which is yeah, a, a suit, a suit yeah, yeah. that you you put on. They use it in um, for designing cars and so on, just so that people it adds thirty years to your age, and so it you know stiffens your joints and makes it much harder for you to see and walk and hear. And I put it on and just thought, oh my, it was so horrendous. How long did you wear it for? It felt like a year, but it was only about 15 minutes, right? I went for a walk around the campus in London where they were, where the woman who was overseeing the suit was based. And I came back and I just thought, it was one of the first things I did is my research. And I began to think, wow, maybe this, maybe I'm wrong to pursue this. Maybe, maybe the chamber of horror story about aging yeah. is true, right? Maybe it is all bad, right? And maybe I'm just going to become some absurd Pollyanna, you know, sort of trying to fly the flag for aging when actually everything about aging sucks. And then I was feeling pretty low after that. And then I, I think it was a few days later, just by chance, I happened to be traveling across the channel to France to a master's cycling tournament. And I turned up there and of course there were people in their eighties, you know, 30 years older than me, whizzing around on these bikes, you know, doing, you know, record times and stuff. And I thought, oh, there is another story here to be told. And so it kind of lifted me up again. And so I found it more than any of the books I've done before, this was a roller coaster, an emotional roller coaster. Because, you know, as I say, I'm not saying that there are not downsides to aging. Of course there are, we all know that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 52 now. I can't run as fast as I could at hockey as I could in my twenties. I need glasses to read small print. I don't have as much hair as I have, you know. You know, there are things that I don't like about, that's part of the, the package, you got right? experience and stories. But you got other stuff as yeah. well. You know, I'm, I'm better socially. I'm, you know, my creativity is as good as it's ever been, probably better. I'm happier, mm. you know? I mean, there's this whole, the whole, the U-shaped happiness curve that human beings Where follow. Where 60s for most countries, oh, right? It's, it's over it's 55. Been, it's yeah. the, the happiest, highest levels of life satisfaction and happiness are found in the over 55s, right? And yet the whole culture tells us that growing older is sad. Yeah, be young. Later life is be depressing. Fresh. Yeah, yeah. Stay young. Young at heart, right? Mm. As though being older at heart means being kind of sad. Think of the words we use: sad, grumpy, crotchety, um, cranky. You know all yeah. those old words we use for old hag. All these terrible this language. It's just sort of hardwired into the the terms and the expressions we use. So, so is there a shift? Did your research show, is it the start of a shift or is it, are, are we a long way down? We have a long way to go, <laughs> but it's the start, definitely. And I think that 
I mean, there's so many intersecting historical trends and things happening that are making it, you know, just even the demographic shift, right? The fact that the planet is getting older every day, that changes things. There's strength in numbers. It's harder to dismiss and denigrate a growing chunk of the population when so many of them now, mid 40s, early 50s, are taking life by the scruff of the neck. You know, we're redefining what growing older looks like. I mean, just a generation ago, I look at what my dad's life looked like when he oh. was 52 versus my- We look at pictures of our grandparents when oh, they're in their 40s. Exactly. They, they, they looked like they old. were in their 80s. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So we've already moved the dial hugely in, in so many ways, but there's a long, long way to go. The cult of youth it runs deep, deep in, in our culture in so many different ways. But I'm a natural born optimist, as you can probably tell from my books. And I do think we're at one of those inflection points where the conversation is shifting, the science is shifting, the culture. I mean, even just something like social media. I mean, I think social media is a wonderful tool for redefining what aging looks like. If you go on Instagram, for example, today, millions of people around the world will upload photos and videos showing their version of being 30 something, 40 something, 50, 60, 70 something. And those versions are a million miles away from the grim, bleak stereotype of pipe, slippers, elasticated waistbands and rocking chairs and yeah. bingo, right? You know, people are showing every day across social media, we're seeing examples of people proving that with a little luck and a bold spirit, mm. any age, any age can be a time of discovery, meaning, joy, sex, romance, success, you know, so, fun. So, so we've got the basics that people need to do, like fitness, mm. nutrition, good sleep. Keeping socially connected. Socially connected, yeah. yeah. It's very important. Learning, carry on learning, all those things. That but you, but bold spirit. Talk to me about that. Well, I, I think that essentially what aging boldly means is approaching life not as a process of closing doors, but of opening them. Or think of, think of it maybe as a video game. Like you're, you're not that as you age or grow older or live, because they're all the same thing. Living mm. is aging, right? It's not a downward spiral to some depressing crash site at the end, right? It's it's more like a video game where you're going up. Each year is a new level. So mm. I'm at level 52 now. You know, what's, what's waiting for me at level 53, you know? Maybe some things I'll have to leave behind when I move up to 53, leaving behind 52, but there's gonna be new stuff in 53 mm. to discover and unpack and, and to marvel at. And I think that's the sort of spirit that I'm trying to capture and put forward as a, a, a new way of thinking is to be bold. Through your reading and even talking to you, you're passionate about aging, which is lovely because a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I've had my best years. Mm. So let's get into the video game. Let's go to another 23 levels higher. What are you? So where does that put me now? Doing Just quick math here. <laughs> 75. 75. Yeah, yeah. What am I going to be doing at 75? Give me, a, give me a day, an average day for you. At 75? Yeah, 23 levels more. Wow. Um, well, I know there'll be a lot of uh, reading and there'll be writing and there'll be cooking and there'll be laughter and there'll be conversation. I hope that I'm, there'll be hockey and sports. I mean, I've, sports has been such and remains such an important part mm. of who I am and, and how I just enjoy being alive. So I, you know, I hope I'm still playing hockey. Uh, if I'm not, then I'll maybe be playing tennis or something a little more. Maybe I'll be even doing golf by then. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll have taken up bingo, right? <laughs> uh, maybe there'll be aqua bingo so I can add a bit of cardio <laughs> to the bingo. Um, but there'll be, I think, I think there'll be the same, I haven't thought of this before. Let me, I, I think there'll probably be a, quite a similar breakdown 
if you did a pie chart of my life today and compared it to 25 years from now, I think the different components would be the same, like you know, cooking, socializing, um, sports, leisure, learning, but just the ingredients, the details would shift. Yeah. And I don't know how much they'll shift. That partly depends on how bold I carry on, <laughs> you know, with my spirit and approach to my own aging. There's gonna be a bit of luck involved as well. Um, oh, in science, it's, it's pretty scary what's happening with some of the technology. We look at CRISPR, you look at mm. genome profiling. There's some stuff coming. There's some stuff that's happening now. It's very new. Yeah. I think at some stage in the next five or ten years, we're going to have a whole different way of approaching aging. They're already looking with telomere length. But it's interesting, right? You don't just want to grow older. You want to be bolder. So it's having yeah. the spirit. It's having that vitality. It's, it's having that, that curiosity as well. You don't just want to you know, get to 80 or 90 and say, I've got no interest. Yeah. Yeah. And, you, of course, you're less likely to get to 80 and 90 if you've got no interests. Because having interests, exposing yourself to novelty, pushing yourself outside the proverbial comfort zone, learning new stuff, that's part of refreshing yourself. That keeps you cognitively and physically fit, along with the socializing, the diet, the exercise, all those other things. So, yeah, I mean, this is one of the, the lessons that I take home most from the book is that ageism or the cult of youth is, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, if you believe that aging will be bad, there's a very good chance that it will be, mm -hmm. right? You know, you're more likely to suffer from physical, cognitive decline, dementia, even die earlier. So, well, there's some uh, of the research you tapped into. I can't rem remember the lady's name, but seven years you can wipe off your life yeah. just by the way you think about aging. Yeah, which is just mind boggling if you think about it. But it shows how we are creatures of, of the mind, right? You know, we're physical bodies in the world, but so much of it is tied up with attitude and the choices we make. Mm. You know, this is not something that the government is going to decree. It's not something that your partner is going to push. It's going to come from you. It's going to come from us inside. It's making that shift, that change of gears, that new way of thinking. And that's that's got to be the start for everything. And then, you know, all the stuff around you and the new science that's coming online all the time, mm -hmm. that will play into how all of us um, age in, in the coming years. But the starting point is always going to be being bold. Do you know, know Linda Gratton? I, yeah, I do. What, the one hundred year life. Oh right, yes, yeah, okay. Um, yeah. And she wrote that with a, a professor at London Business. Yes, School. I read that book. Yeah, the, sh um, the yes, yeah, the one hundred year. I'm trying to remember his name, Richard. A is it Andrew? Andrew, not Scott, but I know so, the book. Yes, I, I read that Andrew book. Scott, yeah, yeah. 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 So I, I did a speaking tour with Linda a couple of years ago. Beautiful woman, um, and she gets up on stage and says, "I'm in my mid sixties, and life is just starting." So very you know, mm. a bold attitude towards aging. Um, but uh, I, I often ask people, like you know, who would like to live to hundred when I'm doing one of my keynotes? Because like, I want to crack hundred. My, uh -huh. my great grandfather lived to ninety nine years of age, oh, wow. and on the farm. And, and the story goes, he was reading the Sydney Morning Herald, and right down the bottom of the Marlborough Man smoking, it had smoking may cease your lifespan. So our great-grandfather stopped smoking at 99. Our family joke is he crazy old guy should have smoked to 100. He would have kept going. Could have got <laughs> through the barrier. So he obviously had <laughs> genetics that yeah. were, I'm not saying you know, smoking's terrible, but you know he had pretty good genetics. But I'll ask people, who wants to live to 100? And it's fascinating, Carl. Not a lot of hands go up. Uh -huh. And I'll say to the audience, what's going on? Like, if you could live to 100, not just lifespan, but health span, why would you not want to add another yeah. 40, 50, 60, 70 years? But that's the, that's the proviso, though, isn't it? If you say to people, I think when you, if you, it depends how you phrase that question. If you say to people, you know, who wants to live to 100, most people in their minds will, will imagine somebody 
broken, yeah, frail in a nursing home do. in their 90s, right? Yeah. So that attitude you talk about, a lot of people, oh, oh I can't imagine another yeah. five years of this shit. Exactly. Let alone yeah. another 55. So attitude, number one. Lifestyle, what, what, what are the big things that you got out of the research to stay bold? Um, well, definitely attitude, right? I think that's the starting point is just changing that chip that we all carry around in our heads, that taking, getting rid of that downbeat, grim view of aging, right? Looking at creating a new story about aging, ones that's richer, more nuanced, more honest, and more, opti more optimistic. It's my birthday. The yeah. kids do it, right? Like, I'm turning nine. I can't wait to turn nine. Yeah. Then we turn 21 and go, oh, shit. No one ever looks forward to a God, birthday after. I'm 30. <laughs> God, then I'm 40. Yeah. Yeah. Remember when you're younger, it's not just I'm turning nine. You sort of say, I'm nine and three quarters, right? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm nine and four fifths. Yeah, I'm right? so excited to be alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so obviously got attitude. Attitude, yeah. And then, and then the levers that we've kind of already touched on, of course, exercise, diet, staying socially connected, having a purpose, something that really puts fire in your belly and gets you out of bed in the morning, uh, learning, exposing yourself to new things. Uh, I think those are all sort of individual things we can all do. I think it's important to be honest about our age as well. I think that if we, there's so much lying about how old we are, right? And I think when we lie about how old we are, we lock ourselves into those toxic stereotypes, Ooh, right? I haven't heard you talk about this. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I think this is one of the problems. I mean, if you if you Google... Well, people lie about, like, so all online dating. Oh, yeah. Well, hello? Classic, yeah. Hello? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Men and women yeah. all around the world are full of shit. Yeah. And then they put photos up. Like, I'm not online dating these days, but you, photo, you go... Phew. It's like speakers. I know some speakers, you probably know some of them as well, who are fantastic speakers. And you look at their marketing and they've still got hair. It's like, mate, you're bald. You yeah. Upgrade <laughs> your photo. 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. That's not you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think that's part of the problem. I think we when we, we're playing the cult of youth game, when we lie about how old we are and we yeah. you know, post old pictures and that kind of thing. But apart from dating and apart from speakers' profiles, what what what, what happens when we lie about our age? Well, I think what we're telling ourselves there is that we're ashamed to grow older. We're, we're kind of buying into this idea that younger is better and that aging is a curse, something to be ashamed of, disgusted by, which is why if you do type into Google search, I lie about my, the number one answer that comes up is it's not my weight, income, or height. It's not even how much porn I watch, right? <laughs> probably, probably up there in the top four or five. No, it's my age, right? And, you know, so we do. We lie on Tinder. We lie at work. We lie to loved ones. We lie to ourselves, right? I've got a friend who recently celebrated her 39th birthday. Hooray, right? For the fourth time. Yeah. And I think what you do when you tell those lies, and often we're doing it tongue in cheek, it's a bit self-effacing, a bit of fun, you know, we're just, is we're just reinforcing the myth, the lie that aging is all bad, it's all downhill. And, and to be honest about how old you are and to say, you know what, I'm, I'm 41, I'm 52, and I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm actually proud of it, I'm, I've reached 52, you know, I'm proud. Of, and, and I've got fuel in the tank and spirit in my heart and I'm ready to go on for 53 and see where it takes me rather than kind of shrinking back and saying, I'm kind of 49, you know, mm. and I just, I don't know. It just seems to me to, to play into the, that stultifying, stifling cult of It's gonna be some pretty seismic shifts. I'm, I'm just thinking oh, at the yeah. moment. So I, I finished working at KPMG in a consulting firm it's the big four, KPMG, EY, Deloitte, and PwC around the world, it's either between 58 years of age and 62 years of age, you retire. Now, it's either you retire 
by sticking your hand up or you're told, hey, Carl, mm. thanks, a lot of tenure. You get nudged Mate, out you're there. Out. You get Exit nudged ramp. Out. Now, yeah. if you're still adding value and you're still fresh or you're still bold, interesting, the ones I think about who stay beyond that are still adding value. They're still sprightly. They're doing all the things you talk mm-hmm. about. But who's to say that you have a birthday and you go from suddenly being 57 of years, course. 364 days, and then you turn a day older, mate, you're out of it's here. It's a scrap heap. Yeah. It's, so yeah. like just thinking, talking about that, that's ridiculous. It is. It's preposterous. It's absurd. But this is what's happened. We've inher- inherited this straitjacket approach to aging, right? And that maybe made sense, that, that take on things in the early 20th century when people most people didn't live, they would retire at, I don't know, what, 58, 60, and they were probably mm. dead by 63. Mm. Now, those people you're talking about who are being pushed towards the exit ramp in consultancy firms at late 50, they probably have 40 years to go, Absolutely. you know? So, so and so much to offer as well. We, we've moved, thankfully, so much around sex and still mm. gender balance has a long way to go, but it's getting better yeah. uh, around race as well. Less racism, but still some in pockets. But, you know, yeah. there's open conversations and there's stuff you can and can't say in a workforce. Yeah. And, and if you do something, you get harassed or there's a harassment claim. Yeah. Are we going to have harassment claims around ageing? Well, we're already starting to see it. I mean, this is, we're just at the tip now as this is starting. This is, it's kind of the last ism that dare speak its name in the workplace, right? Mm. People can still, but less and less. And so the BBC has been hauled out and having to pay off. I mean, this is, it was women who were being paid less, but there was one woman who got fired for being, essentially for being older. And so th- these, these cases are starting to come into the courts. And once companies feel it in their pocket, right, on the bottom line, then they will start to change the atmosphere and the, the rules of the game inside the firm. What so I'm will all, firms change that you think they're, they're going to have starting, to? This is very much on the radar now because, of course, diversity with a capital D has been yeah. a huge thing in the corporate world for a long time. Age was the one thing that didn't really fit yes. into that. Now. But that's changing. And I'm, yeah. I'm hearing from big companies now all over the place who are thinking, look, we've got or we, we are staring down the barrel of a world where we may well have five generations in the workplace at the same time. Mm. You know, How are we going to deal with that? Uh, that we know, we can see that people who are in their late 50s have tons more to bring to the party. We don't want to get rid of them. How do we, how do we change? How do we, what parameters need to shift? What, uh, you know, what rules need to be, to be rewritten in mm. order for this to happen? So we're at the start. There's a willingness to do it. But goodness me, there's a lot of inertia, a lot mm. of fear. And people don't change quickly, you know? I mean, systems don't change quickly. And we are literally inheriting certainly decades, maybe centuries of this built up, encrusted way of viewing the life path yeah. as a narrow three-stage affair. Youth, education, middle years, earning money, building a career, possibly having children, and then- Get a caravan, get gray, get yeah. out. Yeah. Golf, caravan, cruises, rock, rocking chair, bingo, poof, dead. And that just, I think that makes no sense in a world now where many of people will be, will have so much vim, vigor, so much to offer up in, you know, into their 80s and beyond. I mean, look at David Attenborough. I mean, this guy's yeah. making incredible documentaries and spearheading the fight against climate change in his 90s, right? You know, there'll be many, many more David Attenboroughs. Well, at the moment, the they're future. outliers, right? So Warren Buffett, the David mm. Attenboroughs, they've seen more as outliers. But less when, and less when every that year. the average. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, like, it's interesting the way you use that word aging because that's very telling, isn't it? We say it all the time. We say an aging. Uh, athlete and aging. Well, be your next but, book, but, the but, aging author. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, the thing about aging is that we're all aging. Yeah. So at 25, you're aging. Yeah, yeah, true, and yet yeah. we only ever use that word to mean 
old, decrepit, and over yeah, the hill. I, I hate right? it, actually. I, 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 I used to see it in yeah. sport, and, and athletes that I work with and still do would go, oh, mate, they, they're saying I'm ageing. I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Tom Brady, yeah. Roger Federer. Look still, at Federer. I mean, just an awesome tennis player. Unbelievable. Still, yeah. 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 yeah, and, and th those boundaries are getting pushed further and further and further, and we don't all have to – you know, be winning Wimbledon in our late thirties or Super Bowls in our forties, but it's it's a these are weather vanes, right? Mm. They're guides to where we're all going. I'm putting a I'm putting a guide to where we're going. I want to catch up with you when you're 75. Right, it's a deal. Okay, I'm going to put it in the diary. <laughs> I'm going to come back to you in 23 years. I'd love to come back to this conversation. Yeah. I think between I. now and then you will have had a number of other epiphanies, a few more books, and there'll be something else ticking away. Carl, we've now reached the crescendo of the podcast, what we call the Performance Intelligence Baker's Dozen. Normally we ask 13 questions around performance and how you relate it. So, Carl, we've cut this down to seven because I know you spoke about Snow White and the Three Dwarfs. So rather than doing 13 questions, we're going to live your message. And today we're going to give you seven. So number one, uh, you, some of these are cliche, but I like these questions. Your favorite song and why? That's such a hard one because, you know, well, I, I, the, I think the song that I always go back to is Bad by U2. Ooh, U2. Yeah. I love that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's something about that song. I feel that it contains all of human experience. Yeah. yeah joy, rage, fear, love sensuality pleasure i just i just i don't know that song is woven into my life story and mm. yeah i love it's that a song great song great great band. especially the, the version from wide awake in america which is a kind of liveish version it's got longer and it just the, the way bono's voice works in that version is just transcendent okay yeah. there's my home listening tonight <laughs> that your your morning routine uh, pretty simple. I, I get up, I do a bit of stretching, I come downstairs and make a green smoothie and drink it with my um, daughter and wife at breakfast. And then obviously movement to get going before you write. I like that bit as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then after that, I'll, I'll, um, yeah, I'll cycle into the office or if I'm working at home, then I'll, yeah. So question three, and you've, you've mentioned some of this, but what, what do you do to change state? What, what little tips or tactics do you use if you've got a right? Speaking is an interesting one. You're in Australia. You've, you're facilitating tomorrow. You're doing a big keynote on Sunday. If you're not feeling 100%, what, what do you do to get in the zone? I usually I, – I suppose my go-to trick there is to channel – I, I think I go back to hockey. I just think back to hockey moments yeah. that I've, you know, great plays I've set up and I'll kind of move as though I'm doing it and just get my body moving. Cause I, so much of the way I speak and the way I am is, is a physical thing. And I just never, I'm in, a, I'm in such a pure state of joy playing hockey that if I can channel just a bit of that, whether it's to get on stage or anything, then I'll, so I'll, I'll kind of relive a, you know, an amazing play from that week or something, or something. or or I even sometimes pretend I'm doing a slap shot or something if nobody's looking. <laughs> and today's speaking, you're out the back. <laughs> exactly. No, I have done that. I have actually done that. Yeah. Have you got any special requests? Yeah. Look, can you just put a little ice hockey rink out <laughs> out the back before I come <laughs> on to the fifteen thousand people? Take a few shots in the ten audience. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the next question I've got for you is. Um, the book or books that have had the biggest impact on your life, and I'm going to ask that open. Sure, you can answer that. However, I think the book that's that's easy. It's The Quiet American by Graham Greene, which I read late teens, probably early twenties, and it's about a journalist 
in a foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia, and it's that question of how much should a journalist get involved or engaged, engaged in what he's writing about, and mm-hmm. so on. So it it was around the time that I was starting to think that I wanted to go out into the world and write about it, and that book just crystallized everything for me. No, nice. and I've gone back and read it. So I've never, I don't, t- I read a lot of novels in my spare time. I never read a book twice, but I've read that book twice. Question five, what person or people have had the biggest influence on you? Well, I think, I suppose, Martin Luther King, although I never met him personally, I think of Martin Luther King as my lodestar in a sense. I mean, he was somebody who understood, who loved language and understood the power and the majesty of words Mm. to change the words. I do love words, yeah, yeah, I really do. And for me, so much of what writing is, is, I mean, there's nothing quite like, apart from a really good hockey game, there's nothing quite like just nailing a sentence or having a, two or three sentences to come together in a paragraph that's just perfect. Uh, that is just transcendent for me. That's a moment of luminous mm. happiness. So uh, Martin Luther King understood, I, I know he felt that about language, but he also married that to the power language has to change our way of seeing, being with each other, speaking truth to power, changing the world. Because I've, I've always wanted, I've got to save the world complex. <laughs> and I guess my way of saving the world is writing about it, talking mm. about it. Interesting you say him. He's um, fascinating. Like his life wasn't always easy. Wasn't always probably the, had the, the, the model person life. No, um, he was a flawed yeah. person as well, yeah. yeah. But brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm flawed too. I'm, you know, I may be perfectionist, but <laughs> I'm deeply flawed, so I, I feel his pain. Yeah, I just think it's interesting. Maybe you're channeling some of him with your epiphanies. Yeah, I'd love to. Have, I'd love to. Whenever people ask me that question of who would you like to have at a dinner party, he'd be on my list. I'd like. I'd love to know more about. Just, I mean, I've read a lot about him, and I studied him at, at university because when I did history, but I'd, I'd love to, just hear it in his own voice. What mm. the what and the why the when and the where and the how, and just to be beside him hearing that, I think it'll be extraordinary. Yeah, question six, we're gonna go over the other side mm-hmm. of the, the field. Uh, what's your number? What number do you want to live to? Oh, right. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, I thought it's you meant how many people you slept with. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> my wife might be watching yeah, exactly. this. exactly, <laughs> whoa. Yeah. Always uh, lie, Carl. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> lie down or lie <laughs> up, which way do you yeah. go? Depends on what the audience is. That's a, I, I don't actually have a fixed number because for me, it's which may be um, ducking the question, but I, I just feel like I I want to check out when I'm ready to check out. You know, when I'm not when I'm just not enjoying it enough anymore. That's when I want the the curtain to come down. I I, I don't know when that'll be. I I'd, I'd love it to be. I'd love to feel I've got at least another thirty, maybe forty years to go. Of oh, you got at you least twenty three. I'm coming back exactly right now. You got a date yeah. now in the diary. So I've got to. I've got to be good for that, that. I think that's the longest out date I've got at the moment. Twenty three years. We're catching up. Will they take that on an iPhone and the iPad? I'm going to check so. it yeah, out yeah, afterwards. We'll once we're offline. I won't. So I can't give you a number, but yeah, I, that's that's the sort of way I would think about it. And final question: What are you proudest of? The 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 work I've done. I mean, the right. I suppose the writing I've done would be on the on the professional side, and then and then um, and then my children, my two kids. Nice. 
Nice. I could talk for hours. I think we have. We've, we've had I, a I long wish we had more. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, next time you're here, um, we've got to go to Bondi Beach. Definitely. I, I know you've been there. We'll get a, a nicer, sunnier day. For people, though, to connect with you or to find out more about what we're doing, where's the best place to find that's, you? That's the easiest question of the day. Uh, just my website. So it's carlhonore.com. And it's all there. C A R L H O N. O-R-E. Got to remember that. Dot com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've loved today. I've loved catching up. Um, you Great. have influenced me with your writing. I love the epiphanies you have, and I've learned a lot about the writing process. So it's going to make it easier, and I'm sure people watching this are going to get heaps. I can't wait for the next one. Neither can I. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> 23 years from now. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. Hi again, it's Andrew, and I hope you really enjoyed that episode. We would appreciate if you helped to amplify the Performance Intelligence podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience, and I love reading the comments as well. If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite, or purchasing one of the books I've written, including MatchFit, or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM Edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, go to andrewmay.com. And we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence.